Well, good evening. We extend Christian greetings, and it's a pleasure and a joy to be here with you tonight to worship a true God that means what he says. And I think maybe I should have had devotions and he should have kept going. Um, I just find history interesting, and, and he did well at explaining I guess for a opening text for what was on my heart or on my mind, you can be turning to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. Um, I guess I was thinking on the lines of contentment, being a good steward. Um, There's 33 verses in the New Testament that speak on the subject of contentment, and then as I was touring tonight, I happened to think of 1 Timothy 6, and I hope I'm not just jumping in the middle of a text here, but um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we will carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us therefore be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and unto many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay a hold on eternal life, and whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. If you look at maybe the fall of the, of the twelve tribes, I believe prosperity was not kind to them. They soon forgot um, the Lord God, and, and that was brought out tonight in the opening um, thoughts and I thought it went well with kind of what I was thinking. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, I feel like I'm going to run into that thing. (laughs) But it's something that maybe God has been working in my own life over the last number of years, being content with where I am at, what I have, what he's given us. Um, I will say I'm a slow learner. And God is gracious. But um, maybe what has provoked me into, um, into this thought process a number of years ago, I had a just maybe, I like to hear when other ministers speak of maybe how a sermon came into their mind or how it transpired. And, and so I guess I'll bore you a little bit. But I was sharing, we were having a conversation with a, with a banker and um, we were talking on religious terms, had nothing to do with finances and, and we were back and forth and then I just asked him an honest question. I said, I want to know what your perspective of the Mennonites are. Like, what do you think about it? What, when you look at the Mennonites, what do you think of? And he thought for a little bit and he said, the honest truth, what I see is ten more cows and ten more acres. Isn't that a poor testimony? The sad part is he was talking about me. He didn't even know it. 
And that started on a journey that I had to reevaluate my perspective of how I um, view my ambitions, my goals. And like I said, I still haven't mastered them all. And God continually um, has to be reminding me. But being a good steward, I have found, brings contentment. Um, maybe for a little humor. Um, you've all heard the saying, um, being a millionaire will not make you happy, but how many of us would like to try it? Just for a little bit, right? We all get these um, maybe daydreams of what it would be like, but really that has nothing to do with being content. And honestly, I believe that the church today is being pressured by all sides, by society and this idea of an American dream, um, if you know what I'm saying. We just, there's this pressure of, of work hard, save a lot of money, so that when you retire, you have lots and lots of money to do nothing, and then you can pass it on to your children. And what I find interesting is you survey that observation, it's a selfish lie. Because often you see a miserable person working at a job he hates to support a wife and children that don't respect him because he's never at home, um, because he never has time for them. Because of the demands that were created by a large house, five cars, expensive vacations, so it's just a vicious cycle. And then when they get old, you see their families in shambles, and he dies, and the family bitterly fights over what was left. And nobody is really happy. And this big dream, I believe, the devil has spun. Um, I don't believe that wealth is a sin. I wouldn't say that. I believe that sin is when wealth becomes that focus. But I did have an interesting conversation here not so long ago at the sale barn. Uh, Amish, older Amish gentleman, I think it was a bishop, I believe, but he just said that the trailer factory has ruined our church. He said prosperity has ruined who we portray to actually be. The simple, uh, laid-back lifestyle that we proclaim really isn't who we are anymore. We're just fooling ourselves. And I thought, well, I think we could all put ourselves in that category. Aren't we supposed to be the salt and the light and, and be separated from the world? But anyway, I hope you get the drift of what I'm trying to say. But, you know, there are a lot of wealthy people in the Bible. Job was a man of great wealth. But I, as I look at Job's life, he had an intimate relationship with his creator. And first and foremost, he'd get up in the morning and he would, he would serve God. He would worship God, burnt offerings to God. Um, he didn't worry about his business. Um, we have Abraham and Lot. I had to think of those two men. But it's interesting, if you look at those two men, they both had a large amount of wealth, but to the one, it seemed like he really didn't care about it. That was Abraham. Um, he, he cared more about what God wanted for his life. And Lot seemed to always be looking out for the better opportunity. And you look at the end of those two men, um, there's quite a drastic difference came across a story some time ago 
written by Paul Harvey. For those of you that are old enough to know who Paul Harvey is, um, he wrote this little story. He said, The devil called a worldwide convention of demons. In his opening address, he says, We can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't keep them from forming an intimate relationship with their Savior. Once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to their churches, but steal their time so they don't have time to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do, said the devil. Distract them from gaining a hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout the day. How should we do this, the demon shouted. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds, he answered. Tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to go to work seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day, so they can afford this empty lifestyle. Persuade them to take their children to daycares to keep them from spending time with their children. As the families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape for the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so they cannot hear the still, small voice. Entice them to play the radio whenever they drive. Keep the TV, CDs, and PCs going constantly in their homes. See to it that every store and restaurant in the world plays non-biblical music constantly. This will jam their minds and break their union with Christ. Fill the coffee table with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail, mail order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newspaper and promotional offerings of free products, services, and false hopes. That sound like the American dream? Has the devil been successful at spinning his web? I guess the portion that stuck out to me was spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours, husbands to work six, seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day, so they can afford this empty lifestyle. Now we all need to work. The Bible instructs us of that. We are all called to work, and the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about it, and I don't know if we'll go into that tonight. But as we work, we are instructed to work as if we're working unto the Lord. Our work should bring honor and glory to God. And you think about a person who works. It it shows their character. It shows their skills, their their motivations. Um, work done by a Christian should give the world an accurate picture of God in righteousness, honesty. Our business dealings should never mar the testimony, should it? When we get ripped off by the world, it kind of stinks, doesn't it? But what do you expect? It's the world. But getting cheated by somebody that professes to be a Christian, doesn't that leave kind of a sour taste in your mouth? I don't know how many of you guys know John and Betty Yoder from Pleasant Grove, but an older gentleman that I've learned to appreciate, but he told me a story. He went over to Ohio to buy some brood cows, and he said the first thing the, the guy started talking about is how the Lord is so great and how he blessed them so abundantly and on and on and on about the Lord and And John said, you know, that should have been my first sign. Now, why did John say that? 
That kind of puzzled me for a long time. He went on and he bought these cows. They were due to have calves in early spring. And spring came and no calves. Late spring came and still no calves. Early summer came, still no calves. He said, you know, it wasn't the fact that he cheated me. It was the fact that he used God's name to sell them to me. And that always stuck with me. You know, one of the biggest turnoffs to a non-believer is when they hear or when they experience a Christian taking advantage of somebody else. A poor testimony. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Isn't that true? It's amazing to me. You can do a lot of amazing business deals and they don't remember much of them, but you do one shady one, they'll remember you for the rest of your life. So as we work, as I was thinking about this, as we're working, as we're providing, what is the purpose of an earthly gain? King Solomon, as we are learning also in our Sunday school time, you know, he searched the world over. He did a lot of spectacular things. He, he did a lot of amazing projects, if you like architect, and accomplished things that I don't think the world had ever seen before. Even though I believe that that brought a certain degree of satisfaction to mankind as they, as they build and as they do all these things, this was his conclusion. He said, yet when I surveyed all that my hand had done, and what I have toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. You know what he said? Vanity of vanity. So as we are working and as we're laboring, really what are we doing it for? How do we balance this thing of, of having enough to live to pay all the bills and and or knowing when to take advantage of a better job opportunity or growing the business. As I thought about that the last several weeks, it came for me it came down to contentment. Because contentment has nothing to do with what you do have or you don't have. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I have enough and he will supply all my needs. My life should be filled with joy. I should be content and happy. It should not be a life of a rat race, of a drag, of, you know, Fridays should be as great as Mondays if you enjoy and if you're doing it under the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. We, every job, I don't care what occupation you have, it has its Mondays. It has its moments. It really does. But think about this element of contentment. Who is more content? Somebody that milks 100 cows or 1,000? Somebody that farms 100 acres or 1,000 acres? Five employees or 500 employees? Or if you are, your salary is 50000 a year or $500,000 a year, which one brings more contentment? I'll tell you something I've learned. If I just had 200 more acres, you get there and you're still not happy. If you have 1,000 acres, you get there, still not happy. 10,000 acres, 
See what I'm trying to say? It really has nothing to do with what you have or don't have. Young men, you can be just as happy driving an old beater truck as you can a brand new truck. There's nothing wrong with driving either one, but it's a matter of contentment. Contentment is a state of mind. And I I don't think there's anything wrong with growing your business, finding a better job, but if you're doing that to fulfill a void or to find contentment, Solomon's words were vanity of vanity. A chasing after the wind. You know what I find interesting over the course of a few years, I've noticed several businesses say that, you know, sometimes they wish they could just go back to when they were a small business. Or even heard that from dairymen, sometimes they wish they could just go back to a small family farm. Why do they say that? And yet, brothers and sisters, the reality is still before us. We are consumed with the responsibilities of providing for our families. There's a cost of living. It forces us into a money system. There's food to buy. And we just recently experienced a 35% inflation hike. The bills in our house can't go ignored. Um, if If I want to be a dairyman... I'm forced to milk more cows than my grandpa did. Just the property taxes alone cost more than what he milked. If you you see this picture, there's nothing wrong, I don't believe, with staying with the times, but what is our purpose or our goal when we expand? Every one of us has money slipping through our fingers. Um, I know there's a lot of men that are a lot better at handling finances than I am. But I believe that each one of us, men and women alike, are to be good stewards of what God has given us. And I believe that being a good steward ties into this whole contentment thing. I don't think you can separate the two. I could be wrong, but not for me. I believe that everything, it wasn't until I realized in my little journey that everything that I think I own Really, I don't own. I don't own anything. It's all God's. God owns everything, and I own nothing. He has entrusted me with everything he has given me. And it's once I understood that, I began to realize that I'm going to give an account for the way I steward. Psalms 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. Like the text we read tonight. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we will carry nothing out. Stewardship has a lot of different areas in life, not just with money. It's our health, it's our mind, it's our gifts that he's given us. The abilities of our family unit, um, of our time. But I guess tonight I was thinking a little bit more on the money side of things. I believe it's only by the grace of God that we have what we have. And if we think we can build a kingdom and stand on top of it and look down and say, Look what I have achieved, we're only fooling ourselves. Who was that king that stood on the wall and did that? Anybody? 
In the Old Testament, there's a king that stood up there on top of the wall. King Nebuchadnezzar. I forgot the name. Thank you, Alan. King Nebuchadnezzar stood up there and he said, look what I have all accomplished. And God struck him down. Job. He watched everything that God had given him be taken away. I believe Job knew that everything on heaven, in heaven and earth belonged to God. And he fell down and he worshipped God when everything was taken. He said, naked I come, naked I'll go. I believe he saw the authority or the, the wisdom, the sovereignty, I guess, of our Lord. And Job had that communication with him. And he just recognized, Lord, naked I come, naked I go. It's hard. It's hard not to say that it's ours. As Sue and I work, we tend to call it our possessions. But the reality is it's only because God has allowed us. He gave us the strength. He gives us the health. And he gave us the opportunities. And without those three, I couldn't do it. Now, you can become wealthy without God. But the end is destruction. Sometimes we see that in this life. I had to think of the verse here. It says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And I'm sure we could all think of people that have this would apply to. Money has overtaken their lives and they're just in a ruin, in a spiritual ruin. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, it says, Ye shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And so again, God gives us the blessings of being able to work, to earn, to save. All with one request. He set this up in the Old Testament. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Tithing. He wants a percentage back what he gave you. Why, does God, why did God do that? Now, there's a lot of different ways that we can give back, but some of it is required in money. I found it interesting why God set it up initially. It was to meet a certain um, economic or... Yeah, I guess it would be an economic or political system for Israel. There was 11 tribes, or when the 12 tribes entered into the land of Canaan, 11 of the tribes had a portion of land that they could call theirs, all except for one tribe, and that was the tribe of the Levites, because they were to be in, um, to be in charge of the priesthood. So all the other 11 tribes were to give a tenth of everything they had, cattle, produce, um, everything. They give it to the Levites to live off of. And then the Levites would give their 10% to the ones that were serving in the temple that year or whatever, however it was set up. I could be wrong on the whole year thing, but they, that's how the tribes of the Levites survived, off of that tent. 
And also, it was also to meet the needs of those around them. So in Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8, it says, If there is a poor man among your brethren in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lending him whatever you need, whatever he needs. So as I thought about why did God set up a tithing system, I believe it was to teach or it was because of a moral law that teaches us. In Matthew 23, um, Jesus criticized the Pharisees of hypocrites who obeyed the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. Um, They were so precise in how they tithed the small little spices that they had, every little produce in their little garden patches, all their flower beds, everything... They were so particular of how they tithe, they missed the whole point of why they were tithing because they failed to give from the heart. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, we are commanded to give and it should be done cheerfully. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that soweth bountiful shall also reap bountiful. Every man according to as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And our giving should not be for a public recognition. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. So as we share um, whatever talents and abilities and wealth that God has given us, we need to, to do it to, to see and look around where and who. Some have this spiritual gift um, of giving. They can see a need and immediately they know how to give to that person for that need. Um, some do not have that gift, but it doesn't excuse them. They're still called to give. Some just have that gift. God didn't institute a church tax or a church tithe that you pay for your sins like we have seen some in the past. That's why we broke away. I'll also say that God doesn't care that if you have only two pennies in your name or if you have two million dollars in your name, God does not need your money to build his kingdom. Did you know that? And yet God can and God does use money to further his kingdom. These lights don't stay on by themselves, okay? Does God have the power to turn these lights on? Sure he does. But we pay our bills You guys are involved in a school. Does it take money to, build, to start a school and to run a school? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? What about our mission fields? It always blesses me with the stories that we hear coming back saying how 
there was a specific need at a specific time. And just like that, a somebody showed up with the exact right amount because God laid it on the heart. They had no idea why this amount, but that's what they were laid on the heart. It came at the right time. Did God use that money to further his kingdom? Sure he did. But somebody had to be obedient in giving where God called them to give. I like stories. Here's a little humorous story. Pasha stood before the congregation and says, I have bad news, then I have some good news, and then I have more bad news. The congregation got really quiet, and he said, well, first of all, I have the bad news is we need a new church roof. Oh, you could hear the congregation groan. He said, but the good news is we have enough money for the roof. There was a sigh of relief across the congregation, and he said, but the bad news is still in your pockets. One of the biggest holdups in tithing is I have so little to give. God only wants your heart. It's not the amount that you give that he wants. You turn to Mark 12, 41 says, And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and behold, how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they that cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all she had, even all her living. I have a little story here of a little girl who had a really big heart and one little penny. Just one little shiny penny. It's not much, is it? How many of us go across a sidewalk and don't even stop to pick up a penny anymore? She longed to share the message of Christ to those on the mission field. She contributed her one penny that she had to a missionary to help in the work of evangelizing the people of Burma. The missionary was so touched by the little girl's response that she decided that he decided that he must pray and see what he could do with this little penny. After a lot of prayer and careful thought, he bought a gospel tract and personally gave it to a young chief. The chief would not admit that he would not read, and yet he burned with desire to know the content of this little leaflet. He traveled 250 miles to find someone that could read it to him. After hearing the gospel message, it wasn't long after this the young chief made a profession of his faith. Returning to his people, he told them what the Lord had done to him, and later he invited missionaries to come share Jesus in the village. Many tribesmen accepted the good news and were converted. All this and probably more resulted from one dedicated penny given in Christ's name by a little girl who gave from her heart. One little penny. I don't think any one of us are going to go hungry this coming week because we gave a penny. When we give according to what God asks of us, God is pleased with an offering from the heart. The number one reason why people say, according to a study, they don't tithe is because they can't afford it. They say once they're rich, they will tithe. 
If you don't tithe of your $1 that you have, that's 10 cents. You won't tithe of your $1 million, that's $100,000 if you go on the 10% scale. It's just as hard tithing from your $1 as it is of a million dollars. Are you being faithful with what God has given you? Or do you claim that it's yours? I have another little story of a father that buys his son some french fries. And father, this father does what most fathers do. They reach over there and they eat a french fry. And the little boy slaps his hand and says, get your hands off my french fry. And the father's a little hurt. He said, my son is selfish. I have enough money to buy so many french fries, I could, I could cover him with a mountain of french fries. And yet, I just want one, and he slaps my hand. Why is my son being selfish with what I have given him? When, when God asks for tithes, do we slap his hand and say, keep your hand off my money? Why is God asking for a portion? The reason I believe it shows where our heart is. And if our heart is in a place of contentment, it's easy to give. That I can assure you. I'll also say that some say that time is money. No. Time is time and money is money. Both are required of us to give. Some give more of a dollar amount in a physical standpoint. Some give more of their time, but God still looks at the heart and it doesn't matter to him if it's one little penny or a million dollars. He just wants you to be faithful. Something else to remember when you give. When you give, you are accountable to where it goes. So pray about it. Be diligent. Search your best and give what you believe God is telling you to give and where he's giving it. But once you give it, it is no longer yours, okay? Whoever it is given to, they are now accountable to be that faithful steward in using it. Too many times people give and expect to have stock in the organization they give. Or in other words, I'm going to give money here, but then I want things run the way I want because I gave a big check. And that's not right. Once you give, it is no longer yours. And if you don't agree with what the organization is doing, then you have to make it a matter of prayer and decide if you want to continue sending. That's happened already. Where you don't feel comfortable in giving anymore. There's nothing wrong with stopping. But once you give it, it's theirs. I used the excuse for many years that I can't really give what I ought to give because I struggle to pay the bills that I have. But I can testify that God has a way. Okay, it's called budgeting. According to Google, the number one reason people do not start a budget is because of fear. Fear, many are afraid to discipline their lifestyles to match that budget. 
I'll also say financial struggles are real. Even with a budget, and many times we don't have answers for the things that happen, I will say not all financial struggles are from the mistakes that you make. Sometimes life has its upside downs and you get caught on the bottom side. Many preach the more you give, the more God will give you. I believe that's a false philosophy because if the only reason why I'm giving is to get more, I missed the whole point of why I was giving to begin with. Does that make sense? And yet there are so many testimonies of people that gave from the heart and and God just increased it tenfold. We've heard those stories, haven't we? But if that's the only reason why you're giving, you gave for the wrong reason. Also a mistake, I believe, so many believe that it's always in a money form. No, God always blesses you when you give from the heart. There's a lot of blessings that he gives you, but not always in money. And I'd rather have the other blessings. So to bring my thoughts to a close, all God is asking is for you to be a good steward of what he has given you. Don't chase after your own dreams because it's full of vanity, but focus on God's kingdom and joyfully use what he has given you, and you will find contentment. There's no U-Haul trailers behind a hearst. You go out to that graveyard, there's no markers that say the section for the rich and the section for the poor. There's a, you all get the same square plot of land. You're not taking anything with you. I ask you, will a man rob God? My heart says nay. It's hard to think a child of his would thus be led astray. Yet there are those among us who would cheat him of his due, returning dust for diamonds without honor or review. The Lord has spoken clearly as he did in days of old. A tenth upon his altar causes blessings to unfold. No need to focus anxiously on what you can't afford. Just open the windows of heaven and wait upon the Lord. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So he has a purpose of why you are to tithe. Test me in this, saith the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Go home and ponder that verse this coming week. Malachi 3.10. May God bless you. Maybe... You didn't need this message, but I know I did. And so thank you for being attentive. And may God bless you guys as you guys continue to press on, to be faithful, listen to his word, and don't be like the Israelites were and flee. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, that you are sovereign. You are Lord over all. And that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die for our sins and we could never have enough money to pay for that gift. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with many material blessings. We are 
the wealthiest among the, the world, they say. And yet so often we forget the many blessings that we do have. So Lord, may we not be washed away with the prosperity that's around us. Help us, Father, to keep our perspectives in the right place and to worship you and to honor you with everything that we have because it's a gift from you. Lord, I pray your blessing upon the Salem congregation and each one that's here tonight. As they continue to be a pillar here in this community, would your grace be upon them and, Father, help them to uh, be open to the opportunities that are around them to share the, this great news of Jesus Christ. Again, Lord, we thank you for this evening. We ask that you be with us as we go from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.